So there's a handout in the bulletin that walks through the scripture reading this week, um, and it's a little bit different than normal. So there will be a reader and a group section, which the group up here will say, and then later uh, there's a section marked all, and if you could join in reading along in that portion, uh, that would be great. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the throne are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Thanks be to God. Somewhere there are copies of the sermon manuscript. Um, I don't know what happened to Sylvia. Is she here? So she's going to come around in case you want a copy. You already have the word of God. I don't know what I can really add to it. But you'll have it in your hands. So this sermon is part of a series that Jim and I are preaching on how Jesus is making all things new. And I gave this sermon the title, Renewing Worship. 
I started with one big question. Why does worship need to be renewed? Or another way you could ask it is, what's wrong with worship? But before we can really answer that question, why does worship need to be renewed, we need to answer a prior question. What is worship supposed to be? You can't diagnose what's wrong with a thing. You can't identify what will fix it or restore it or renew it unless you know what that thing is supposed to be like when it's good when it's right. So once we have some sense of what worship is supposed to be, and once we understand what the problem is with worship, then we can ask the final question, what does renewed worship look like? So the outline of my sermon is just like that this morning. I want to ask and answer three questions. What is worship? What is wrong with worship? And what does renewed worship look like? What is worship? We can get a little help from the history of the English word worship. I don't pull out etymologies all that often, but sometimes words hide inside of other words. And inside the word worship is the word worth. Worth is the root, the suffix ship added onto it makes our word worship. Sometimes still to this day in Great Britain, if a person is worthy of honor, you call them your worship. You're recognizing their worth. To worship is to ascribe worth to someone or something, to declare, usually it's a person, to declare that that person is in some significant way Worthy, And if you remember our passage, isn't that exactly what we see happening in this magnificent vision of heaven? What do the 24 elders sing to God? You are worthy. The majestic creatures who live in heaven ascribe worth to their creator. That acclamation, you are worthy, is the foundation of worship and the essence of worship. Let me expand, though, on that action of ascribing worth within the framework of this morning's passage. Before there can be any worship of the Creator, there has to be a creation. There have to be creatures who worship the Creator, acknowledging that relationship of creature and Creator is part of worship, right? Why do the elders say that God is worthy? Listen to the words that they speak to God. Because you have created all things, and it was by your will that they came to exist. But let's not just look at the fact that the creatures were created. Let's also pay attention to how they were created. Creatures that are capable of worship are capable of at least two things. Knowing and acting, including the act of speaking. Creatures who are able to worship are able to think and to express their thoughts and to put their thoughts into action, things like falling down and casting their crowns and so on. Specifically, because the Creator created them this way, they're able to worship, to know God as Creator, to praise God because he's the creator, and to serve and obey God as the sovereign ruler of all creation. And that is the very essence of worship, to offer God loving praise 
an obedient service. That's what all the creatures in this vision do, day and night without stopping. No matter how majestic they are, no matter how great their knowledge, no matter how many eyes cover them, no matter how massive the crowns on their heads, they fall down and worship one who is far greater, the one who created them. They cast their crowns down before God's throne and exclaim to God, you are worthy. That's what worship is. So where's the problem? What's wrong with this beautiful picture? Well, something is. Let me draw your attention to the scroll in the passage. It seems to be pretty important, right? What are we supposed to make of that scroll? Let me say a few things about it. And especially what I think the scroll would have represented to the original audience that received this revelation way back in the first century. First of all, a scroll is a seriously embodied thing. It's not a little paperback that you can slip into your travel bag. This is something you need two arms to carry. There's a, there's a, a Jewish festival, I think, called Turo Torah, right, where you dance with the scrolls. You ever, have you ever done that, Sharon? I always wanted to do that, to dance with joy with the, the scrolls, and it's like, like your partner, you know? Second, what a scroll embodies in its embodiedness is the writer's mind, the writer's intentions, the writer's plans. We so take that for granted because books are so commonplace in, in, our, in our experience, but this was quite an amazing step in human development and, and still kind of a wonder in the ancient world that thoughts could be written down. Third, and here's the real important part, this particular scroll is obviously massively significant. Seven almost always represents divine activity. This scroll in the right hand of God embodies God's mind, God's intentions, God's plans. It represents the expression of God's will and the embodiment of God's purposes in a material creation. If we sort of follow the logic and the trajectory of this passage, the implication is that God wants to replicate that order and beauty and, and awe that's in the heavens in a material creation. God wants the physical cosmos to share in this same rhythm of the creator giving life and every creature giving praise back to the one who gave them life. So here's the problem. In heaven, the creatures who live there are able to ascribe worth to their creator. In a sense, you could say that they are worthy to bring worship to God. You have to be worth something to ascribe worth to someone. They are capable of fulfilling God's purposes for them, but it is not so with the material creation, especially with the particular creatures who happen to be us, the conscious, self-aware creatures who can know God and speak to God and who can act. But here, no one can be found who's worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, to unfold and embody God's purposes the way God wants them to be implemented in the material creation. And that's what's wrong with worship in the book of Revelation. And if you think about it, that's what's wrong with the world. No one is worthy 
or able to fulfill God's purposes. And that's why John, when he sees this vision, begins to weep. Well, I'm glad we didn't end there. And by God's mercy, it's not, I mean, we did end there, but we're not going to stop there. I'd like to invite the readers to come back up so that we can hear the rest of the story. And I'd like all of you to go back to the, to the handout, turn it over to page two. And I'm going to invite the readers to read the rest of the passage. But this time, your part is going to be a little more active because when we get to the parts in boldface type, I want everyone to join in reading those parts out loud. And I want the second one to be really loud. In fact, why don't you even stand up if you're able? Because I want us to sound, if we can, like a little bit like every creature that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So let's go. <clears throat> then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered and having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing, To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What we just heard and shared in and experienced in a way doesn't really need a whole lot of commentary but I do want to point out a few really important things this short passage of only two chapters is really a retelling of the story the whole Bible tells the story of creation and fall and redemption the em emphasis on the first chapter that we read Revelation 4 is on God the Creator and the act and fact of creation. And, and this act of God almost fails, almost comes to a screeching halt because of the fall, which gets in the way of God's purposes being fulfilled. But it doesn't end. And the emphasis in the second chapter is on, chapter 5 that is, is on redemption and on the death 
and resurrection of Jesus and the renewal of hope that he brings for all God's purposes. That's why you notice a really significant shift between chapter 4 and chapter 5 in, in two ways. First of all, in chapter 4, the focus is all on God the Creator, and all of the worship is directed to the one who sits on the throne. And the reason that worship is offered, the reason everyone says, you are worthy, is because God is the one who created, the source of everyone, everyone's being, everyone's existed. But in chapter 5, notice the shift. All of the focus is on the lamb who was slaughtered as a sacrifice. And all of the worship is directed to the lamb who's given the right to share God's throne. And the reason for the worship, the reason now that everyone says, you are worthy to the lamb, is because of the sacrifice he offered to God, the sacrifice of his own life, the offering of his own blood, which ransoms people for God. In effect, it makes them, makes us worthy again to ascribe worth to our Creator and our Redeemer. It restores our capability to worship and to embody God's purposes. It makes us qualified to serve with Christ as priests before God. He offers a sacrifice that renews and restores and redeems worship and everything that worship implies. And in the Bible, there's really not that much distinction between the word abad as worship and the word abad as serve. Sometimes it's translated servant, but it's often translated worship. Anyway, that's what the song of praise says. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered, because by your blood you ransomed for God people from every tribe and language and nation, because you made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. They will fulfill God's purposes for the embodied creation. There's another prophetic vision that I think gives a lot of insight into how this works, or a great other angle of view, and I'd like to share it with you. It's from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. If you have the manuscript, it's right there in the manuscript. If you have a Bible, you can turn to page 770, Zechariah 3, beginning in verse 1, or you can just listen. But I think this is one of the most amazing and encouraging passages in the whole Bible because it, it just shows the grace of redemption acted out before our eyes. This is a vision. It's very much like the, the book of Revelation. Zechariah is a book of visions. And then God showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord doing what the high priest does, offering the offerings to God. And Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan's name means the accuser. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord, the I am, the ever-living creator, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this man a brand plucked from the fire, almost burned up, but snatched from destruction? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And he said to him, See, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you with festal apparel. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with the apparel. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's a vision of renewed worship. That's a vision of a restored priesthood. That's what the Lord has done in us by his blood. He has restored our worthiness to ascribe worth to him, to see his glory and to offer our thanks and praise and to embody his will in our lives. In two weeks, on Pentecost, I actually want to talk more about that second part, about the royal part of Christ's royal priesthood and what it might mean to reign with Christ, what it looks like to embody God's will and God's purposes in our lives. But I just want to say a couple more practical things this morning about the priestly part of the royal priesthood, about Christ's renewal of worship, and especially what that might mean for each of us personally. It's obvious that worship in its fullest sense is a communal activity. We just wouldn't be having the same experience this morning if we were here alone, right? I mean, sometimes it's great to be alone, and that's part of my point. When we worship here and now, it's almost as if we enter the space and the time of the vision we are studying this morning from the book of Revelation. And worship, especially that really fulfilled worship, is the main thing we were created for. And will never be completely fulfilled until we can participate in worship as fully as possible, and really until we see God face to face. Everything else before that is only a shadow. But there are some things that will either allow us to enter more deeply into the sacred space and time of worship, or that will make it harder for us to do that. We occupy this space and time together, but we come as individuals, and where we're at spiritually on a personal level affects where we end up when we worship together. If we really want to grow in Christ as a community in our ability to ascribe worth to God and to Christ together, then this won't be the only place we will offer our worship. We'll also worship in a personal way, in the private spaces of our homes in the private moments of our day-to-day lives. And I want to focus on the things that fill our hearts and our minds. I find that there are usually two things that interfere with my worship. And one of them is what happens in my mind, what either is or isn't in my mind. When I worship, I don't know if this will ring true with you, I struggle with thoughts that distract me whether I'm praying in church or whether I'm praying at home. I start off trying to pray, and suddenly I find that I'm planning a menu 
or thinking about my schedule for the day, or worrying about a bill, or wondering whatever happened to this letter that somebody sent me, or, you know, those kinds of things. It especially bothers me when it happens here, when we come together and all of those worldly cares follow me into church. And the best way I've found to try to deal with that is to reverse the flow, if I can put it that way, by by taking with me into the rest of the week, into that ordinary space and time out there, if I could put it that way, the thoughts and things that fill my mind when I'm here, reading through the liturgy again, taking the bulletin with me often helps, reading the passages again, singing the songs again, praying the prayers again. It's not a no-fail solution, but it's a way of focusing my attention on God, my Creator, and Christ, my Redeemer, filling my mind with as much knowledge of Him as I can and making His works and His worthiness the main object of my attention. I mean, really, isn't God more worthy of my thought than than menus and bills and things like that? I can't completely ignore them, but... Why not focus on God as much as possible? I've never been as close to that as I, as I want to be, but the closer I can get to that every day, then the better I worship here. And I think the more prepared I will be to worship when I see God's face. The other kind of interference happens in my heart, and there are two ways it happens. One is that Not only do I not focus enough on God's glory, God's majesty, God's holiness, God's worthiness, like I was just talking about, but I don't take it to heart enough. In the new creation, God's glory and majesty and holiness and worthiness will will blaze like the sun, but in this creation, it's veiled, and you have to look for it. But you also have to meditate on it. You have to sort of digest it, if I can put it that way, the understanding of God's goodness that is available to us, both through the Scripture and through the glorious creation that God has surrounded with us, has to do more than just inform you that God is your creator. It has to form you into a person who worships personally the one who created you. It has to form your heart. It has to stir up love for such a great God, a God who made you and when you wrecked yourself, redeemed you and restored you and renew you, renewed you. All of that, that kind of meditation takes a bit of time. It takes a bit of attention. But when you give it the time and attention, it changes you. It creates a capacity in you to love God that grows and grows. And the second, so not focusing enough on God's love for me is one of the obstacles to worship, and the antidote to that is focusing on his love. The second is that I focus too much on my unworthiness. Now, there's an extreme that you just don't care about your sin and you don't work to overcome them. But most Christians I know focus too much on their unworthiness. And that's where Joshua the high priest was in that vision we heard from Zechariah. Caught in the shame 
of his sin. And, and, and when you feel that, when you feel nothing but your unworthiness, then you have no motivation to look more deeply into God's holiness and God's goodness and God's majesty. You just feel unworthy and you want to move away. And that's exactly what Satan wants and it's exactly what God doesn't want. If that's you sometimes, you need to hear the right voice, not the voice of the accuser telling you how bad you are, but the voice of Jesus who gave his life to snatch each one of us from that fire of destruction and that just futility of an unredeemed life that can't fulfill the Creator's purposes. So you need to hear. We all need to hear and take to heart what this morning's passage says. And really, it's true, and we need to believe it. By His blood, He ransomed us. It's not wishful thinking. It's what those creatures in heaven who see far more clearly than we do say. You're worthy. By your blood, you ransomed people from every human tribe, and you made them together a kingdom of priests to serve with Christ and to reign with Christ. And when we really get that, that's when we will really be free to worship God, to worship Christ, and to ascribe to him the fullness of the worth that he is due. We need to accept and live into the blessing, the identity, the calling, that this passage declares that are ours in Christ. You are God's treasured possession. You are a royal priesthood chosen in Christ, sanctified in the blood of Christ to serve before God's throne, to serve in God's creation forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Will you pray with me? You are worthy. You did take the scroll, Lord Jesus. You did break open its seals. You will fulfill ultimately all of God's purposes. You gave your life to ransom us. And we pray through your goodness and through the grace of your Holy Spirit and through the power of of the everlasting Father. You will complete the good work that you have begun in us. Continue to make us worthy so that we can ascribe worth to you, so that we can enjoy your goodness, so that we can, en can glorify you and enjoy you forever, so that we can reign and serve with Jesus. In his name, we offer this prayer as we offer ourselves. Amen.